morning. Hope you're doing well. We are in the book of Haggai today. Haggai. So if you have a Bible, you can open up there. If you have no idea that there actually was a book, Haggai, I understand. It's at the end of your Old Testament. So you can flip back to the back. It's about three or four books this way from Matthew, the first book in the New Testament. Um, It's on page 956 in my Bible. Well, probably doesn't help you at all. Um, But anyway, uh, we are uh, in the book of Haggai. We're doing a short little four-week series. Last week, after church, we all uh, went over to what is our new building, and we were there, uh, had a little picnic, kind of dreamed together, prayed together, enjoyed the building together. And so in planning that, uh, that picnic from last week into this week, we thought it would be helpful um, for the next four weeks to pick a book in the Old Testament that has some similarities. We know that some of them are, some of them are loose. Some similarities to kind of what we're, we're doing here at Remedy uh, and, and what's going on. And look at those four weeks and draw out any of those applications that we can make and apply them to what's going on in our situation right now. And so uh, we're doing the book of Haggai. Uh, for the next four weeks. And so here's some things that we have in common. Uh, wh- there, there will be other things, but here's the for sure thing we have in common with the book of Haggai uh, is this. These people in the book of Haggai uh, are tasked by God to build a building for God's glory. And so by the Lord's will, that's what we want to do here. Uh, we want to <clears throat> uh, build this building not for our own glory, but for His and be used by God to spread his name and fame all over York County. So there are definite differences, numerous differences, between uh, post-exile Babylon, Israel, and us in Rock Hill. There are numerous differences, but uh, as we're looking through this, we're just going to preach the text, and whatever it's about, it's not necessarily just about building a building in that time frame, but there's things that it's about. uh, As we're doing that, we're going to teach the text, and when there's applications for what's going on in the life of our church, we will make those, and what's just going on in everyday life not necessarily having to do with the building, we'll make those as well. So um, let's pray, and then uh, we'll start in Haggai 1. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your mercy, your grace, your love, your kindness that you've given to us. It's undeserved and unmerited, and yet out of sheer mercy, you have shown to us anyway. Thank you for your word. You chose to speak, and in speaking, you have communicated in a written form that's been passed down to us. And so uh, we can know what you want to say by reading this. And there's amazing power in that. We thank you for that. And I pray that you would give us all um, ears to hear what you want us to hear in the text today. Namely, the meaning, the true meaning of the text. Pray for myself, God, that you would help me speak. Um, fill me with the Spirit that I would say all things that are true and helpful and um, honoring and glorifying to you. Be with us all now, and I pray that all of us will see and understand that all the Bible is about Jesus, and we'll see the gospel of Jesus in the Old Testament book of Haggai, and this small minor prophet. And so we pray, Lord, that you would direct our hearts towards that and increase our affections for Christ as we look at this. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So... Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Haggai or the Old Testament or Old Testament history, uh, I thought, um, I was going back and forth, but I thought it might be somewhat helpful to get you to this point in the Old Testament. So 
I'm going to do a brief sketch, and you know when I say brief, I, I mean that loosely, uh, sketch, of, sketch of the Old Testament to get us to this point in the Old Testament. And I'm going to start with Abraham. And if you know anything about the Bible, you're thinking, Fudd, you're not going to do that briefly. And I'm, I, I'm going to, I, I, it's pretty brief. So I, it was pretty successful first service. So uh, I want you to understand what's happening here. Because if I had to say post-exile Babylon, they've come back. Some of you are like, like, what? So let's, let's try to get to what's going on. Um, in the book of Genesis, I'm, I'm going to start in chapter 12. You can, you can read 1 through 11. That's just the flood, basically. Creation, flood, there they are again. Um, so in Genesis chapter 12, God in his infinite mercy and wisdom looks down and chooses a man named Abraham. For no reason, it wasn't like Abraham was awesome and he could, you know, bench 450 or something. Like he was just, he was just a guy, a pagan guy walking around and he's like, I want you, Abraham, to be the father of my people. I'm choosing you out of sheer grace and mercy. And so you are going to have, if you read Genesis 12, 1 through 3, numerous children, numerous people, you're going to be, and they're going to be the people of God and you're going to be the father of them. Um, And so he chooses Abraham and uh, he tells him that I want you to just believe in me. I want you to follow me. I want you to have faith in me and let me be your God and you'll be my people. No law, no follow my commands, all good news gospel. Trust me, believe in me, follow me, have faith in me. Um, Well, Abraham does an okay job. He certainly has uh, a hiccup there, uh, but he eventually does have a son. Um, named Isaac with his wife, who she was 90 when she had the baby, um, which is old. The Bible wants us to know that's old. It wasn't like a special circumstance because the Bible says over and over, Moses says, she was old. So she was old, and she had a son named I- Isaac. Um, and Isaac had two sons, but the second son, Jacob, was, is kind of the lineage and the line that the Lord was choosing to bless. And so when we get to that particular point, I, Abraham's looking around, he's like, where's this huge family? Like looking around, like stars in the sky, sand on the seashore. There's Abraham, there's Isaac, and there's Jacob. <laughs> not a whole lot of people. Well, eventually, Jacob, he, he's not the most trustworthy fellow in the beginning. And through some circumstances with his wife and a second wife and then their handmaidens, he eventually has 12 children, 12 sons, maybe more children. Um, and so he has 12 sons. Uh, his favorite son was with the woman that he loved out of those four, Rachel. And, and he had Joseph. And to Joseph, which was his... Uh, I think 11th son, 10th son, 11th son, he, he gave the coat of many colors. And perhaps you know this kind of story of the coat of many colors. The, all the other brothers are jealous of, of his favor that he's shown. And so they say, they, they, they act like they kill him and they send him off. And they, they, tell, they tell the dad, he got attacked by an animal. He's dead. He's gone. Well, Joseph <clears throat> ends up over in Egypt. Uh, and eventually, through a set of circumstances, if you read you know, Genesis 38 through 50, um, you'll see that he becomes... He's quite organized and quite a good leader. He becomes the second in charge over all of Egypt next to Pharaoh. Pharaoh puts him in charge over all the food and puts him in charge of all the things that are going on there. Um, well, through another set of circumstances, several miles away, and, uh, his whole family, Abraham and their, or his son, father, or Jacob, uh, and the whole family comes over to Egypt because there's a famine. And Joseph is able to take care of his whole family and bring them in. And now they're going to... Uh, be there with him. And he has this kind of, uh, Joseph has this deal with the Pharaoh. Hey, these are my whole family. I want you to take care of them. Pharaoh says, okay, I'll take care of them. And so they're all in Egypt, all being taken care of uh, until that Pharaoh dies and a new Pharaoh comes in who doesn't care about that deal. And so uh, all those family of Joseph who are actually becoming 
really numerous, all become slaves. And so these, these people, or the Israelites, which, by the way, just means uh, Jacob's nickname was Israel. And so anybody that comes from Jacob are the Israelites, or you can call them the Jacobites if you want, but the Bible calls them the Israelites. Um, and so all these Israelites, instead of being kind of taken care of in Egypt, now become slaves in Egypt. Uh, and they don't like this. They don't want to be slaves anymore. And so uh, God raises up a man named Moses in, in this particular time of the Israelites to bring them out of slavery of Egypt and bring them back to their promised land where they were before, um, where Abraham was. And so Moses, um, you know some of the story, but he basically, uh, Pharaoh let my people go and frogs and everything, and then they get out, right? They eventually get out. They go all the way up to the nose of the promised land. Moses doesn't get to go in there because of some disobedience. Joshua, kind of the next in line after Moses, leads them into the promised land. Well, on the way towards the promised land, God uh, brings them up, brings Moses up and says, uh, I want to make a covenant with with my people Israel. I want to make a covenant with them. This is the Old Covenant. That's why this is called the Old Testament, because this is the Old Covenant he makes with them. It's in Exodus 19. Now, if you know anything about the layout of the Bible, the Ten Commandments are in Exodus chapter 20. So this is pre-law. This is pre-commandments. This is, this is God, again, being gospel. This is him wanting to give them good news. And this is what he tells them in Exodus chapter 19. He brings them up and it says, while Moses went up with God, the Lord called him out of the mountain. And he says, thus, say to the house of Jacob, you know, all the Israelites, and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you up on wing, uh, eagle's wings and brought you out here to myself. I, I, I brought you out of slavery. Basically what he tells them, he says, now, this, remember, this is before law. This is before, keep this command, keep this command, keep this command. Don't do this, do that. This, Ten Commandments plus the other 600. He, he's a God of gospel. He tells them this. If you will indeed just obey my voice, keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that I speak to you, people of Israel. Just be my people. Follow me. Let me be my God. I'll take care of you. Same way he told Abraham... Trust in him, believe in him, have faith in him. He's telling them, just be my people. They don't do this. They don't do this. They, they choose to follow idols. You know the golden calf, perhaps. Um, and so they break covenant, and so God gives them law. The law is good, but God gives them law in order to help them understand that they will always choose sin um, until they have a mediator. And so uh, he gives them the law. They, they can't follow it. They, they weren't able to, be, to follow this unbelievably amazing covenant that he extends to them. They choose idolatry. They choose their own way. But still, God's faithful because this is the kind of God he is. Brings them to the promised land anyway. And Israel will have to be under law now. And so God still is faithful. So they get into the promised land. God's their king. And here they are. And they look all around at all the other places. And they say, well, every other nation, um, these are pagan nations, by the way, not the people of God. All these people have, have a king. How come we don't have a king? And he's like, you do have a king. I'm your king. And they say, no, we want to look like the other nations and have a king like them. That's bad, right? To say we want to look like the pagan nations to God is not, not a good thing. But here's what God does. He says, okay. And he gives them a king. He lets Saul uh, be raised up and Saul becomes their king. Saul wasn't necessarily a great king, but he was the first king over all 12 tribes of Israel. This is the 12 sons of Jacob. They represent all the 12 tribes. And so now he's... the the king over the 12 tribes, united, they're all together. Um, after Saul, which he wasn't necessarily, as I said, a great king, God actually gives them a great king. 
to follow Saul, David. And David certainly had some, some problems. There's no doubt about it. Um, he failed many times, but God said, he's a man after my own, my, my own heart. So uh, in his failings, um, cheating on his, on his, well, he has numerous wives, but uh, having an affair with a married woman named Bathsheba, she bears a son. The son dies, but she bears a second son. He marries her, this second son, with a woman who was um, married before Bathsheba. The second son is Solomon. So that's, that second son they have, Solomon, becomes the king of Israel after David. Um, and Solomon had, again, a lot of, a lot of issues, no doubt. Um, but uh, he was the king of Israel, and he built the temple for the Lord. Well, Solomon would be the last king of Israel under a, a united kingdom. It's all 12 tribes together. Solomon's son came after that, Rehoboam. Wasn't necessarily a good leader, didn't have it all together, and couldn't keep the 12 kingdoms united. And so at that particular moment, the, the 12 kingdoms broke into two kingdoms. And you had ten, 10 kingdoms to the north, and this is called Israel, and two kingdoms to the south, which is called Judah. And in between was this region of Samaria, and they would have to go through Samaria. A lot of times they go around Samaria to go, to go see uh, the people of Israel. And when they broke into two kingdoms, 10 to the north and 12, 2 to the south, they actually had their own kings now. This northern kingdom, Israel, had their own, king, had their own kings, and the southern ver, uh, version or the southern kingdom, Judah, had their own kings. And they had a series of pretty bad kings uh, in those two regions. They were plagued by a series of bad kings, which led them astray, which led them into multiple sin, multiple idolatry. And and because of their idolatry, God allowed other pagan nations to come in and take over those kingdoms. So in 722, the Assyrians come into the north and take over the north. Um, And now... What was Israel and being Israel and having their own land and having a king and being in their promised land is now taken over by the Assyrians. Uh, the south was a little more complex, but in the end, King Nebuchadnezzar in 586, uh, leading the Babylonians, comes in and conquests and takes over the south. And so you've got the Assyrians taking over the north, the Babylonians to the south, and then the Babylonians take Israel, or these, these two tribes, and ship them over to Babylon uh, to live there. Now, if you were with us, you know, a year and a half ago when we were preaching through the Bible in Jeremiah ch- chapter 29. This is whenever, in ter- 29, they've been sent over there to live in Babylon for 70 years. A whole generation that was unfaithful to the Lord that, that allowed the Babylonians to come in. God says, you're going to go over there for 70 years. And after 70 years, you can come back. And basically, that just means everybody that's alive has to die. And your children get to come back over. That's, that's, your, that's your punishment. That's your judgment. You all weren't faithful. You let the Babylonians take over. And so while they're there in Jeremiah 29, it says, you're going to be here a while. So build houses, have kids, plant gardens, be missionaries. This is where you're going to be. Well, back over here uh, in, their, in their land, uh, the Babylonians were actually overthrown by the Persians. And so at this particular time, King Cyrus the Great, uh, who was leader of Persia, who took over this land, let some of those uh, Israelites leave Babylon and come back to Jerusalem early before the 70 years was over. So you've got uh, half-ish or so of those that come back to the south. They come back to Jerusalem. They're allowed to have houses. And so they get started on rebuilding the temple because it had been destroyed. And so this is post-exile southern kingdom from Babylon coming back into Jerusalem. And when they come back in, uh, they start rebuilding the kingdom. And Ezra tells us in chapter 3 and chapter 4, they, they wanted to build the kingdom because it represents for them the very presence of God. And so we need to have the temple because we want the presence of God with us. That's, that's very important. And Ezra chapter 3 and 4 tells us that they get started, opposition comes, 
and then they stop. And so you have this temple kind of halfway built and halfway still in ruins sitting there. And that's where we pick up the book of Haggai. Haggai comes to them and he's basically going to say, you've seen the temple? Not finished. What? You're going to finish this or what? That's, that's kind of the gist of where we're picking up here in the book of Haggai. So it's, it's deep into Old Testament history. It's deep into what's going on. Um, Cyrus, who is the one that uh, was leading Persia to take over the Babylonians, he had died and his new son, Darius, now is reigning. And so it, Darius is king and he's allowing some of these things to happen. And so you can actually see that in verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king of the sixth month on the first day. So we actually know when Haggai stood up and told everybody the very first prophecy that he had for him. August the 29th, 520 B.C., he stands up and tells them. And he gives prophecies for over four months until December, I think it's the 18th of 520. And then Haggai fades out. He has four months of, four months of prophesying. Four months, and he gives them four different oracles, kind of... One a month, one, well, kind of one, April, uh, August, September, October, and then jumps over to right there in December, and then he fades back. So that's, that's what we're going to be looking at over these next four weeks are the four oracle prophecies that he gives to them. The first one that we're going to look at is today in chapters one, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. That's what we're going to be looking at here. So uh, Haggai, he's about 70 years old at this particular time, and he's going to uh, give them this prophecy. Now... The ESV Study Bible helps us understand the theme here of Haggai. It says this, temple restoration, which is what's going on. It's halfway built, but not completely finished. And Haggai wants to help them understand it needs to be fully built so that you have the presence of God with you. You want the presence of God with you. Temple restoration highlights the Lord's desire to renew this covenant relationship that he had made with them, with his people, characterized namely by his presence. The temple represents his presence. A decaying temple, which is not finished being built, signifies a decaying relationship and brings defilement with the people rather than holiness. God wants them to be holy. He wants his presence to be with them. He wants them to follow him. So the house of the Lord, which that's what it's called, which is the temple, symbolizes God's presence. It also looks forward to Christ as temple, looks forward to church as temple, and looks forward to one day in the new heavens and the earth, the dwelling of God in the new Jerusalem. So building this temple... Uh, is the visible sign for the people's determination to finally put God first. They weren't putting God first. They're putting themselves first. They kind of halfway built it, and then they made their houses really nice, which you'll see the indictment that he says. And so he's saying, you're not putting God first. You're putting yourself first. Uh, And so you need to put God first. So not building the temple for them is equal to not doing God's will. Not doing God's will. So that's what we're going to look at today is doing the will of the Lord. We're going to see some things in the text that will help us understand how to do the will of the Lord. Now, I want to be, I want to be really clear because we all know that the Lord, if we're in Christ, has a will for us, wants us, desire, desires for us to obey that will. And we, we should want to follow the commands of God, follow the will of the Lord, be obedient to his will. And there's, a, there's two ways, right off the bat, there's two ways that we can be obedient to his will. We can go the legalistic route and say, well, the Lord says I got to do it, so I'm going to do it, bare knuckle it, and I got to do it because I got to do it because God says, and so I'm going to do it. Like, that's the legalistic route. That has nothing to do with heart. That just all has to do with outward behavior, doing something because God says. But the other side is uh, gospel obedience. It's because of what Christ has done, I want to obey. Here, they were in slavery in Babylon God brought them out of slavery, and as he brought them out of slavery, that should cause for them 
joyful obedience to want to build the temple, which equals for them, do the will of the Lord. Now, don't miss this. The exact same thing has happened to us. We, before Christ, were in spiritual slavery. And he, we're slaves to sin. And he brought us out of our slavery to sin. We confessed and repented our sin. Jesus Christ died for us on the cross. We receive forgiveness. And now we are completely forgiven. Brought out of spiritual slavery. Brought out of slavery to sin. And now made righteous. And so because the gospel has happened to us. Because we have put our faith in Jesus. Just like them. It should also for us want to cause us to have joyful obedience to the will of God. So we don't go the legalistic route to fulfill God's will. We go the gospel route. Because of what Christ has done, I don't have to do God's will. I want to do God's will. He's forgiven me of all of my sin. He's cleansed me from all unrighteousness. He set me on a path towards sanctification, being more like Jesus, and one day heaven being with him. So I'm motivated here to obey the Lord's will because of the gospel, not because of legalistic behavior modification. And so um, we, want, we want to understand from the background that the Lord is motivating them to obey His will, uh, not out of guilt, but instead out of good news. And the same thing should be true for us. So Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, uh, we, we kind of brought up to speed here, and this is what he says. In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, uh, the prophet, uh, Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel. That's a fun name. If you're pregnant, there's a good boy's name right there. Solid name, Zerubbabel. You can just call him Z. Zerubbabel, the son of Shelatiel, another pro- awesome name. Uh, governor of Judah and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. I don't know about that one, the high priest. Uh, the, the, Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Obviously, that's not the case. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Um, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Now, that might like, sound like exul- luxurious to you, but that's, that's a big deal of comfort for them. They have uh, made these awesome houses. For, they've gone down to the Hebrew Ikea. They've stacked it up. They've got the Pier 1 in there. They've got the nice tables. They put the panels on the side of the house, and the Lord's house is in ruin. He's wanting to contrast. You've got really awesome house. God's house not looking so good. Um, and so you, you're living in your paneled houses while this house is in ruins. Feel, feel the contrast that he's trying to help you see. Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. This is why things aren't going well for you. Verse 6, you can see there's five things he says that aren't going well. You sown much, you harvest little. You eat, but you don't have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, no one's warm. You earn age, wages, but it just falls out your pocket, your holy pockets. Um, Thus says the Lord of hosts, again, notice the repetition, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So he's telling them, you've got nice houses, it looks like you're always struggling to get stuff done. You're always struggling to get stuff done because you have a nice house, and there's no temple. So build the temple. Go get the wood, build the temple. And you can see it in verse 9. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because... My house lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above have withheld dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, and on man and on beast and all their labors. Things aren't going well for you because you're more concerned about yourself and doing your will. You haven't done the Lord's will. That's why things aren't going well right now. 
So he's beckoning them to do the, the will of the Lord. So you can see in verse 1, we're going to go back through here. I'm going to point out some things about doing the Lord's will. It says in the year uh, that the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So remember, even though Haggai is speaking it, it's coming from the Lord. And it says it's coming, he's giving this word to two people, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel, you can see, is the governor. He's actually an heir to the throne of David. He's related to David. So he's, he's basically the king function. But you also have Joshua, who's a descendant of Aaron, of the priestly um, line. And so he's the priest. So he, he, uh, Haggai comes with the, with the background of the, of the temple in ruin and speaks to uh, Joshua and speaks to um, Zerubbabel with all the people present and says, I got to tell you something. With this back in my background, this house right here needs to be rebuilt. And I'm making sure your king and your priest know this. And in front of everybody, you've got you to switch things up. You can't, you can't just make your houses really nice while this... Well, this, the Lord's house lies uh, in ruins. And so he says this all to him, And then he starts it by verse 2, stating what they say. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So the people say it's not yet time. Why would they say that? There's, uh, looking at commentaries, there's at least three different possible scenarios of why they would say that. One is because they came out of... Uh, Babylonian captivity early, and so they were thinking, oh, we really should, it's kind of like the Lord would be mad at us if we, if we start this until the full 70 years is over. So we want to wait till the full 70 years is over, and then we'll rebuild the temple because else we're kind of a, doing a, going against the will of the Lord. The second idea is, is that the Samaritans had come in and given them some opposition, and they said we should probably improve our relationship with the Samaritans first before we rebuild the temple. By the way, if you fast forward 500 years, the relationship with the Samaritans still isn't good, right? So we know that that's not necessarily the case either. The third one is theological because all long, before you get to Haggai, I mean, there's been lots of Old Testament history, and they had been listening. They knew that there were continued promises of this coming Messiah over and over, and they're thinking, possibly could be thinking, well, we got to wait on the Messiah first. The, the, the Messianic figure is going to come, and once he gets here, then we'll rebuild the temple. Uh, whatever the reason, they're convinced that it's not the right time. And so Haggai, strike that, God has something to say to them via Haggai. Uh, So in the presence of all the temple ruins, he gathers them all together, and he says to them, verse 4. And this is a uh, a rhetorical question. When God asks you a rhetorical question that you can't answer, it's it's bad. The question, when they ask it, you're just like, can't say that out loud. That's not good. So here it is, verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Um. As I said, the paneled is an extra added measure of comfort that the people said they couldn't afford for the house of God, but they could afford for their own house. So this isn't good. They've, they've already dressed up their house as well. They're living in comfort while God's house remains unbuilt. And more importantly, while God's will remains undone. That's the key. God's will is remaining undone. They're not being obedient. So the comfort for them was their distraction from doing the Lord's will. So here's the first thing about doing the Lord's will. It's easy to get distracted from the Lord's will. Easy to get distracted from the Lord's will. For them, it was comfort. For them, it was comfort. They wanted their paneled houses first, then they would take care of God's house. But it could be a number of different things for you as well. What, what distracts you from doing the Lord's will? Time. Could it be comfort? Could it be you just don't feel like you can do it? Is it that you've got a whole lot of other things you want? Like, what is it that's happening in your life that distracts you, that keeps you from doing the Lord's will. Pinpoint that. Know what it is. 
figure that out, and then by the, by the sheer mercy of the Lord, put those things out of your life. Don't let those things, uh, t- if you can't put it out of your life, don't make it primary. Make it secondary, tertiary, quadriary, whatever that fourth one is, to, to the will of the Lord, fifth airy. Like, get, get it out of there. Don't make it a primary thing to where, for them, comfort keeps them from doing the will of the Lord. Make the will of the Lord primary. Now, you can see here, he tells them, uh, after he asks this rhetorical question, uh, which they're not going to answer, he really wants them to stop and pause and think. So he tells them, you can see it in verse 5 and in verse 7, consider your ways. Consider your ways. This is a Hebrew idiom that's not exactly how, it, how it's written. We've translated it into, to understand it, consider your ways. The, the, the exact Hebrew is, put your heart on your roads. So this is an, an idiom, which... You know, like we say, it's raining cats and dogs. If you weren't from America and you didn't never heard that idiom, you'd walk outside and be like, no, it's not. It's just raining really hard. Um, it's just an idiom for them. It, put your heart on your road for them means really consider what's going on in your life. God wants them to understand. He wants them to get the connection between why they don't have crops, why they don't have food, and why they don't have money, to why they have really, really, really nice houses, to why God's house lies in ruins. He wants them to put all that together and see the connections between all those things. Now, we need to be sure, this is not an early version of the prosperity gospel. This is not God saying, hey, you build my temple, I give you stuff. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. That is not at all what's going on here. Instead, God is wanting them to help them understand how he's designed the world to operate, which is this. Human flourishing occurs when we honor God and follow his commands. That's kind of the general principle of life. He's created the world to operate in this way in a general manner. There's all exceptions. You can find them, I can find them, we can all find them. But overall, human flourishing generally occurs when we honor the Lord's will and follow his commands. And so he's helping them and warning them to stop. The Lord wants them to pause and really serious, seriously reflect. That's why he says, consider your ways twice in verse 5 and verse 7. Consider your ways, consider your ways. The NIV study Bible says this. I know you just freaked out a little bit, right? I said NIV. That's all right. It actually has some good stuff. I know I kid with it a lot, but it actually, in this particular case, had some, had some good stuff in the study Bible. I kid with the NIV, the non-inspired version. It says this. Haggai, I'm just kidding. It's not that. It's New International. All right. Haggai is subtly calling the people. This is so good. Haggai is subtly calling the people to share the priorities of David and Solomon. He wants these people of Israel to share the same, same priorities of David and Solomon. If David felt guilty about living in a house before God's house was complete, and if Solomon provided paneled houses for God before he did it for himself, then how can they live in paneled homes before the temple was rebuilt? So he's subtly calling them in to, to share in the exact same priorities that their, their two greatest kings of Israel ever did, David and Solomon. So uh, he's calling them to have a wake-up call. So here's the second thing in regard to the Lord's will. Um, We need constantly to have, I should have put gospel wake-up calls from God to to remain focused on His will. And so, who is it that does this for you? Who is it that comes to you and say, hey, you're not following the Lord's will, but He has brought you out of slavery. He He has saved you. He has called you righteous. You have You've been forgiven completely. Who's the one that comes forward and calls you out of those distractions and gives you these gospel wake-up calls so that you can remain focused on his will? Is, is it your spouse? Who is it? Is it your community group leader? Maybe it's your college roommate. 
Maybe it's your pastor. I'm just kidding. It's like, who is it? Who is it that, that's ridiculous. Who is it that says, consider your ways. Put your heart on the road. Who's the one that calls you forward to understand what Christ has done in the gospel and to respond accordingly and respond with gospel motivation? Whoever it is, listen, this person is an absolute gift to you. It's a gift from God to you to have this person in your life. So who is that person? Know who that person is. If you don't have one, get that person and thank them. Write a postcard or a text or whatever you communicate with. Like, tell them, thank you for being this person in my life. You are a gift to me in my life. Please keep doing that. And then you need to keep listening to them. Have the person that they can help you who tells you, because it is a gift from the Lord. Haggai, but it's really God, is through Haggai telling them to consider their ways. Their, their wake-up calls Haggai. We all have them. Who is, who is it for you that uh, tells you to consider your ways and think about what Christ has done? Now, if you keep going, you're going to see that these particular people uh, are still doing what could be important things. Um, but they weren't just, they just weren't making the Lord's will primary. We, we've already listed it in verse 5. These things are important. Food and shelter are important. Without those things, we'll die. So they were, they were they, it's not like they were just, you know, doing crazy stuff. They were doing things in order to live. It's just that in doing those things, they weren't doing the Lord's will, namely building the, t- the temple. You can see it in verse 6. You sow much, you harvest little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages puts them in a bag with holes. So, like, these are important things. Doing these things, finding food, finding shelter, those things are important. But when you take those, what can be important things, and make them primary over God's will instead of God's will being important, the most primary thing, then that's where you get out of balance. So the third thing about the Lord's will is this. Important things, important work, can keep us from God's work. Important work can keep us from God's work. That's not the way that the Lord has designed it. Matthew 5 says, Seek you first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added to you. So we don't seek... These are important things. We don't seek those things first and then hopefully try to get around to doing the Lord's will. Instead... We seek you first the kingdom of God. We seek to do the Lord's will. And because he's such a good and gracious God, he supplies all of our needs that we need in Christ Jesus. So we don't, we don't do it backwards. So when we're talking about the will of the Lord, we want to, we want to uh, even though these things are true, even though these things are good, we want to do the Lord's work first. And then those things will be provided to us. So here, here's the truth. It's both bad and good. Every one of us, if we were truly to stop and consider our ways, our ways would all realize that we place sin, we place our own interests above God all the time. Every single one of us do this. Um, and this passage is actually reminding us that we are incapable of providing the obedience that God requires of us. We are completely incapable of it. God is perfect, God is holy, and He requires perfect holiness from us. And so when we consider our ways, we realize that we will constantly put ourselves over the priorities of God. That's the bad news. The good news is this. In order to escape the wrath of God, we need uh, to appeal to God for a mediator. It's our only hope. And the good news is that in order to escape from the Lord, or escape from the Lord's wrath, He has provided this mediator, Jesus, to redeem us, to bring us out of our inability to be obedient to Him because He was perfectly obedient, Haggai is pointing us to Jesus. 
and saying, your only hope is Christ. So what the Lord desires here is not for them to just build the house. Just build your house, God. There it is. There it is. That's not what he wants. He wants them to have a heart change that wants to do his will, that wants to be obedient to build the temple. The same thing for you. The Lord doesn't desire you just to do his will because he says so. Instead, he wants a heart change to happen in you so that you want to do it, that you want to do it. And here's the good news. You can't do that. The Lord's got a will that you, you and I are perfectly incapable of doing, and the only thing that's really going to please him is a heart change that wants to do it. Here's the great news. I mean, this is unbelievable. The good news is this. God's grace gives what God demands. He wants you to obey his will, which you can't. So he helps you do it by having a heart change, which you can't, by actually creating the heart change that you need in order to do the will of the Lord. It's all God. It's all grace. This is the good news, that he supplied every single need we have in Christ to be obedient, even the heart change necessary. God's grace gives what God demands. That's how overflowing with mercy and grace he is to you. He's calling you to do something that's impossible and expecting you to do it. And what he does is causes you to do it and causes the heart change necessary to do it in a pleasing way to him. And so, important work can keep us from the Lord. But this is not God's way. And the good news is that what's necessary is a heart change. And he is the one that provides it to us specifically through Jesus and only through Jesus. And verse 8 shows us how he provides it for them. Now, you'll read it and you'll be like, he's just telling me to get wood. Um, But it's not that. Look at verse 8. They need to build the temple. Here's how God supplies. Verse 8, go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house. Uh, We could just think that's just directions. But I don't think it's just directions. It's far more. It's God supplying them all they need to do his will. Who created wood? Who created the concept of wood? Who told him where the wood was? Who created hills? He created everything. There it is. I created it all. Go up there and get it. And as you're up there, you'll see that I'm supplying all that you need in order to obey me. God created everything, and he's telling them where to go. He's telling them what to do. He even created what they need to do. This is grace, 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 grace. We all should take heart because what God demands from us, God supplies to us. This is the amazing God we have. This is an invitation to them to go up to the hills and get wood to build God's house. But it's far more than that. God's invitation is for them to repent. Go up to the hills and repent and experience God's supply and blessing. And then come down and be obedient to the will of the Lord. Build the temple for them, for us. Be obedient to his will. So some of us, like them, need to go up to the hills. Repent of our sin. Experience God's supply. Experience the amazing grace of Jesus Christ to forgive us. And then come back down and begin building. Begin being obedient to the will of the Lord. And the good news is that everything necessary for that, God has supplied. Everything necessary. God is a God of grace and supply. He's an amazing God that we serve. So here's the fourth thing about doing the Lord's will. God graciously graciously supplies us to do his will. All that we need. All that we need. He graciously supplies everything that you need. That means this. That when it's glory given time, that 
you and I don't deserve any of it. There's not one shred of glory that we get. He gets it all. He called it. He wants us to do it. He supplied it. He supplied the heart change. He gives us the tools necessary. And he pulls us out. He saves us. He supplies the mediator that lived the perfect life for us in Christ. He forgives us when we call upon him in repentance. Forgives us and sets us on a path towards heaven. He literally does it all. And we want to walk in not legalistic obedience, but gospel obedience. uh, Motivated by unoverwhelming gratitude that he's done this for us. Now, whenever we look at the the Lord's will, as I just hinted, it's not about our glory, it's all about his. Verse 8b tells us that. Go up and build the, the, go to the hills, bring wood, build the house, and here it is, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord of hosts. So here's here's the fifth thing about doing the Lord's will. Uh, For them, you could look at it and say, They're doing the Lord's will so that they have food, so that they have water, so that they don't have holy pockets. That's the only reason why they don't want to do it anymore. Holy, not like, you know, you're holy and righteous. I mean, like, they don't don't want holes in their pockets and their money falling out anymore, right? You could look at it and say, the only reason they're doing it is so they have stuff. That's not it. The primary reason that they obey and the primary reason that we should obey the glory of God is not to pull us out of what we could think of as as a bad situation. The primary reason is the will of God. We do the Lord's will primarily for his pleasure and his glory. Ultimately, they are not doing it from relief from the curse of the ground not bringing forth food. Instead, they do it for the pleasure and the glory of God. God wants you to be obedient to his will in such a way that you are pumped up about him receiving glory for it. I mean, you are over-the-top excited that God's going to get glory. This is touchdown Gamecocks excitement. When they score, all I want to do is, woo! And he wants me to be that excited about him. Right? Maybe not Gamecocks. This is touchdown Tigers excitement. This is, they just won the national championship excitement. Right? This is, feel that. Like, if you're a Tiger, how much do you, like, yeah. Like, he wants you to be that same off-the-top off the level excitement for him, for his glory. That people are pumped about him. If you're not a sports guy, how about this? You have kids, right? And if they dance or if they have, they have sports or whatever, and they're playing or they're dancing, and they, they're doing something, and they just they, they nail it. It's like, oh, my gosh, they just did awesome. When you see that, you smile and you're excited. And like you, you're just so happy that they did that. In the same way, he wants you to feel that smile and that happiness that people are going to see and understand this is about the glory of God. He wants us to be so excited about being obedient to his will because people are going to get to see the glory of God here. This is touchdown Gamecocks level of excitement. That's what we're talking about here. We, we want to be wired in such a way that we desire so much for God to be glorified and we want to be pumped when people see it, we want to smile that they're going to see the glory of God here by me being obedient to the will of the Lord. This is why we should want to do the Lord's will. Primarily because it gives glory to God. In the end, the primary reason the Israelites should want to build the temple is not because it's going to bring them blessings of food, but primarily It's because God's going to take pleasure in it, and God's going to be glorified. So if we're making a direct application to Remedy Church then, the primary reason we should want to build a building is 
not because uh, it'll make easier, uh, make setup easier, because it stinks to do that for eight years, right? Can I get amen on that? It's, it's not because we want to finally feel like we've arrived. It's not because any of those things. It's primarily because we have a place that the Lord is going to take pleasure in and the Lord is going to be glorified in. That's why we want that. Not any other reason. Those things might be secondary, and I am happy about the setup breakdown thing. But primarily, it's because God's going to be glorified. So the end result here, God's saying, consider your ways. Consider your ways. And the ultimate result of them considering their ways, God takes pleasure and then being obedient to doing the Lord's will, and God is glorified. People see the glory of God and respond. And we should love it that people are seeing God being glorified. So as we're going into conclusion, let me ask you some things. Are there any things in your life that are distracting you, keeping you from doing the will of the Lord? What are they? Know them. Pinpoint them. Eliminate them. If you can't eliminate them, make them really far down the list. Don't make it comfort. Don't make it ease. Don't make it you. Don't make it boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever you make it. Don't make that something that's more important than doing the will of the Lord. If you have somebody that comes alongside you and gives you that good gospel wake-up call, thank them, ask them to do it more, and stay their friend forever. If you don't have one, go find that person. They're probably in this room. I'm 99% sure Jesus put them in the room today. That might be a a, a little bit of an exaggeration. All right. um, But maybe not. Maybe not. They could be. Uh, The next thing is this. When you're considering obedience to the will of the Lord... With everything in you, don't lean over to legalistic, I got to do it behavior to to obeying the will of God. Instead, consider just like the Israelites were brought out of slavery back into the promised land, that the Lord has brought us out of our spiritual slavery and brought us one day into heaven, the promised land. And we want to be motivated to do his will because of the gospel, always because of the gospel. And lastly, we want to do the will of the Lord for his glory. We want people to, we want God to take pleasure in what we do, and we want people to see that glory and be excited about that glory and uh, want to take part of that glory. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for this text. Thank you for this word. Thank you for helping us understand your will, helping us understand that uh, the primary reason we do it is because of Jesus and that we want to see it done. We pray that for all of us, that if there's anything that keeps us from being obedient to following your will, that you would remove those things from our life. <clears throat> and Lord, that we would, uh, we would hear the call that you give them to consider their ways, hear the call that you say to put their heart on the road, and we would do that as well. We would stop and think for not following the will of the Lord, to make the connections of why, to really pause, to really think, to really reflect on what it is in our life that's keeping us from doing that. And then consider what you've done for us. Consider Jesus who lived the perfect life for us, who died the death for us, who imputes all of his righteousness to us if we trust in him by faith. So I pray for anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would trust in Jesus. They would believe in his work on the cross. They would be forgiven of their sin. They would know that they can be saved forever. They can know that they can go to heaven by trusting in what Christ has done for them and that you would save them this morning. And for those that know you, that they would be motivated by that, not by guilt, never by guilt, but by the gospel. And Lord, that they would seek and desire for you to be glorified in their lives. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.